Hi, my name is Mattia Murray, and welcome to The Longer Road. You are on The Longer Road if you have multiple intersectional identities that are often marginalized. You've had to work harder to get to the starting line, and you might feel behind. I'm here to provide hope, support, and practical tips, and to let you know that you're not alone. Hello, hello, welcome. Today I want to talk about a very standard human trait, which is that we are more afraid of losing what we have than of not gaining what we could. So when we think about giving up what we have now in the hopes of getting something else that's better, or for example, when it's been studied, people are, for example, more afraid of losing $30 than of not gaining $50. There are probably some complex psychological reasons for all of this, but part of it is once we already have something, once we consider something to be ours, and it could be an object or a relationship or a life circumstance, we like it more. We like what we already have. People like the thing that they just bought more than the same thing if they just looked at it and didn't buy it, because it's theirs. So whether that's biological or cultural, I have no idea. But this seems to be a fairly persistent human trait, that we are afraid of losing what we have, and that if there's the chance of gaining something and it ends up not happening, we might be disappointed, but it's not as impactful, it's not as painful as if we lose something. And this has been a really important factor in my life, and I'm really glad that I learned about this idea when I did many years ago, because it has actually helped me make some better decisions and specifically take some risks that ended up working out. So before I dive in today, I just want to say that today is a bit more storytelling. It's a bit more me talking about my experiences, and I'm aware that my experiences do not map directly to you. So I hope that they are useful, interesting at least and that you can get something out of it. But I'm not really giving advice based on my story. It's more just this general idea. And if I do end up saying something that's a bit more advice-like, I will just comment on that, say that's what it is, and then get back to the storytelling. And that's because I really do make a distinction between what works for me and what is scientifically validated or seems to work for a lot of people. So for me, one of the main places this has showed up in my life, being more afraid of losing what I have than gaining something potentially better or more aligned or more exciting, is that I have a great tendency to be unrealistic about what I can actually accomplish. And specifically, to be unrealistic about what I can accomplish and remain in good health and take care of my mental health. I definitely have the ability to hyperfocus. And as someone who doesn't necessarily get all of my body signals at that interoception as easily, for example, when I was composing my senior recital in undergrad, I forgot to eat for almost three days because I was not receiving hunger signals from my body pretty consistently, partly because I didn't eat enough growing up and partly because I'm autistic. And I was in that excited, flowy, hyper-focused state and just didn't notice. And that's obviously not sustainable. So for me, I have to create space in my life in order to be creative and do the types of projects that I want to do. And I do have a tendency to 
tack things on to my life and say, oh, it's fine. I'll just do this other project because I want to and it's exciting to me right now. And historically, what's happened for me is that I don't maintain friendships and relationships and I don't take care of my health very well when I'm doing that. And that was sort of manageable when I was only responsible for myself. But even when I got a cat, he's almost 15. I've had him since he was four weeks old. That actually really helped me transition into realizing, oh, I actually can't do what I'm doing. I have to buy food and take care of this other creature. And obviously that's even more intense if you have a child or children or taking care of someone else. So for me, this has been somewhat cyclical. I will work more, do too much, overload myself, sometimes have a flare-up or mental health issue and end up needing to take a break. And I would say my ability to do more and my overall spoons have increased very significantly, especially since realizing I was autistic and cutting my sensory load and generally decreasing the load on my system. I'm very proud of myself for turning down an opportunity this week, musically, that I really wanted to do, but I just knew it would not be responsible or sustainable to add it on top of what I had already committed to. And I both didn't want to do a bad job with any of the things I've committed to, but part of what I'm committed to is creating space for my long-term goals. And for example, this podcast, which I'm doing for free and I'm not monetizing in any way at the moment, really ties into, I would say, one of my main long-term goals, which is supporting multiply marginalized people in not only having relief and feeling better, but feeling so much better that they are able to be creative, do problem solving, give back. That has been so incredibly meaningful for me. And I don't mean that in a weird capitalist production kind of way. I can be whatever they want it to be. But I know that for me, healing my autonomic nervous system to the degree that I have has absolutely changed every aspect of my life. And that's what I'm wanting to pass on to other people. And I just don't have the mental space to do this podcast and be creating content if I don't have space in my life. And I'll be honest, as I'm practicing what I'm preaching and doing less, it's very easy for my brain to go to a place of lack because I'm not constantly at my max. I'm used to pushing myself so much and so hard that not doing it feels like something's missing. And yeah, that something is anxiety and overwhelm, but I'm very used to that. And giving that up, in a sense, is very confusing for my brain. And one of the reasons that's true for me, and I was very happy when I learned this concept from Linda Tai, it's not original to her, but that's where I learned it, that when our nervous system has a narrower capacity, can be due to trauma or neurodivergence or a variety of reasons, that narrower window for most people is pushed up either so they feel safer when in action, and that's me, that's my system, or pushed down so they feel safer when they're in rest. And to my body, rest does not automatically feel good. I used to kind of have two modes. One was super overdoing it, overstimulating myself, and pushing myself to my max. And the opposite of that for me was just dissociating. I didn't have a great relationship with rest. But even just creatively, 
Boredom is an essential part of the creative process. We need to take things in and we need to be bored and let our brains just do stuff and make connections. And when I wasn't giving myself that space to be bored and process, I either wasn't creating as much as I wanted to or as often as I wanted to, or my creative output just wasn't as high quality as I would like. So now I'm experiencing a much wider range of brain states, I would say, but my system still feels like it's safer to lean into overloading rather than risking rest and either experiencing panic because I have experienced trauma at rest, which is part of it for me, that feel, you know, rest doesn't necessarily feel safe. But also now that I'm not dissociating all the time, sometimes rest reminds me of when I used to just lie there for hours. And honestly, that's not even too bad. I don't want to make it sound like I think that that's a bad thing. I really think dissociation can be a very effective coping mechanism, but I used to beat myself up about it. So that's part of my current healing journey is learning to be comfortable with doing less with resting, and with finding ways of resting that are genuinely restorative to my system. Sometimes that is the full rest of taking a nap, and a lot of times it is being outside, actually getting a little sunlight, taking a little walk, etc. Another way I've seen this main idea of being afraid of losing what we have play out for me is with negative thoughts and beliefs. You may have heard that of the tens of thousands of thoughts we have a day, approximately 80% of them are negative. That was evolution's way of making sure that we noticed if something was wrong in our bodies or in the external world. The default portion of our brain that we are not aware of, that's constantly looking all the time, it's looking for negative things. There's a part of us that is constantly scanning the environment for bad news. And apparently, one of the differences between people who are anxious and depressed and people who are not is that the people who are not just don't really care about those bajillion negative thoughts that they're having. And when I first learned that idea, when I read that idea in a book, I was horrified. And I was like, that can't possibly be true as a naturally anxious person myself. I was like, that I can't even imagine being someone who just wouldn't care about having like 60,000 negative thoughts a day. But as I've talked to some of these people that totally do exist, it's not just that they're not aware of them. I don't think it's a total lack of awareness of their own thoughts. It's more a lack of attachment to them. And to be clear, I am not saying that people need to just let go of their negative thoughts. There are signals we receive that we need to pay attention to. And that actually has been important for me for getting out of some bad situations when I was having a lot of negative emotions and thoughts. Sometimes those were telling me I needed to get out of an abusive situation. So it's not just about ignoring these or letting them go. For me, it's been more about interrupting those neural pathways when they're not useful and when they're not serving me so I can build new ones. And that sounds well and good, right? Of course, I would want to be less anxious and depressed, right? That sounds great. And at the same time, I remember two big moments one, when I went no contact with my parents in 2014, and I literally have not been depressed since. So some months after that, when I realized, oh, wow, this is the longest I haven't been depressed in a while. And then more recently in the last couple of years, when my anxiety significantly came down. Both times I had this acclimation period and kind of 
wondering who I was without those brain states or these sort of longer term traits of my brain. They had become a part of my identity. And again, to be clear, this is just my personal experience that may have nothing to do with your experience. And I know there are many impacts on these brain states. And some of these ideas came together for me when I read the book, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And one of the main premises of that book is that we can only tolerate so much happiness and growth and good feeling before our brain tries to pull us back to where we were. Because our brain likes to conserve energy, it likes to maintain homeostasis, and it feels overall safer experiencing what it's already experienced. Our brain is a prediction machine, and when it predicts that we're going to feel a certain way, and then we don't feel that way, even if what we're experiencing is actually better, in a way it's still kind of a negative hit in our brain, because our brain predicted incorrectly. And then our brain has to expend energy to figure out why what it predicted didn't happen. And for me, I think part of this is related to some of the communities that I've been a part of, and I'm still a part of, and in particular, the systemic issues that have kept so many of my communities in poverty. Because when you're spending all of your mental energy just to try to survive, pay rent, and eat, it can actually be pretty fucking annoying to see somebody thriving and doing really well and hear them say something like that they manifested it or whatever. I'm really not trying to make fun of anyone in particular. I just remember being annoyed by that for the vast majority of my life when I was just struggling to eat and pay rent. It can feel like a really slow process to acclimate to being well and to being, for lack of a better term, successful. When things are going well, and we're not used to that in my case, it was really difficult for me psychologically to acclimate to that. So in the last handful of years, I've had to acclimate to having much, much better mental health, moderately better physical health, having healthy relationships with strong boundaries, to loving myself and enjoying time with myself in an active way and not just as that default dissociation. And part of the reason I wanted to share this and talk about this is that I recognize the role that money and housing stability have played in my own wellness. And I want to acknowledge that both as a privilege that I've experienced in the last few years and because I know that there's no amount of positive thinking or therapeutic modalities that can make us feel awesome when we are just struggling to pay the rent and eat. So a little bit more about my money story. I talked a bit in the first episode about growing up poor, and I remember being really happy when I learned as a teenager that it was not possible to inherit my parents' debt because I was very worried about that. And in my young adulthood, in one of my first job situations, I experienced a lot of wage theft and lost tens of thousands of dollars that I should have made and simultaneously and relatedly was in a financially abusive relationship. So besides just the financial ramifications of that, I had huge trust issues around money and being taken care of and receiving and had a really skewed idea of what my time was worth. And if I had opened a legal case around that, I absolutely would have won it. It was very clear cut and I had proof. But my PTSD was so bad and I just did not have the executive function to do anything like that. I couldn't even imagine doing that. And that set me up for being in debt throughout my adult life. Because I took out some student loans I wouldn't have needed to otherwise. 
and lost those wages that I could have used to at least be in a somewhat better situation. I have a lot of compassion for myself looking back at that situation, but for years after that, I really just blamed myself for both getting into that situation and then not fighting it and not going the legal route afterwards. And in the decades since then, multiple times I've had to really walk myself and love myself through consciously stepping out of that fear that I learned from that situation. I was so afraid of ever letting anything like that happen again that I developed what I think of as kind of a toxic self-reliance. I said, okay, I can't trust anyone around money. I don't want people to give me money or gifts in a way that makes me feel obligated. And it got to the point where I actually felt uncomfortable even asking for money for my services. I would sometimes have people owe me money and I just wouldn't send out the invoice or would never ask for it. And the way that this relates back to this original idea of giving up what I have or, you know, fear of losing what I have is that part of what I had was this intense self-reliance and it felt very vulnerable to give that up at all. But if I had not done that, for example, my cat would not be alive because he needed a major surgery when he was six years old. And I had to ask for people to help with that because I couldn't really cover any of it at the time. And he ended up surviving and now he is almost 15. And I remember processing at the time what a big deal it was emotionally that I was letting myself receive, even though I found it emotionally terrifying. So I had to give up, in some sense, a portion of my identity in order to make space for allowing other people to take care of me, which I did not want to do, but I'm very happy I did. More recently, a few years ago, I was living with my partner and had the opportunity to move out into a subsidized, accessible apartment. Emotionally, that was a big risk because I had to give up something that was really great. My housing situation was great, but it was more expensive and it was not as accessible. And I knew that going to a rent-controlled apartment that was fully accessible and had an elevator was going to improve my physical health, which it did. And because I was paying less and had that rent control and had some other amenities, and because it was in downtown Boston, so I had access to so much more and I was able to do more because I was spending less time commuting and was able to access some things that I couldn't before. Letting go of what I had made space for building the life that I have now. And then again, this happened last year when my partner and I, same partner, moved to a new city and bought a house together. We had to do a lot of processing around my psychological issues around receiving and specifically because they were putting in most of the money up front for the house. And there was a part of me that wanted to wait until I could put in an equal amount or something like that. And that was just not realistic for where I was in life and what I was doing. And I know it sounds ridiculous in a way for me to be saying that I had to allow that to happen because I had to have access to it in order to allow it to happen. But it was actually a really big shift for me, a really big psychological moment for me to allow this unevenness with money, having had a financially abusive relationship before. I had to trust that this person was not going to do the things that a previous person did. And I had to trust myself that I was going to still set and maintain my own boundaries and not make the money mean anything weird about me or our relationship. And right now I'm kind of going through another round of this letting things go to make space for new things. I've been very committed to the work I do coaching neurodivergent queers. 
and just recently I got a new certification in integrative hypnosis. And I'm realizing that what that is good for and some of the things that are interesting to me about it may lead me to work with a different group of people or groups of people, potentially in shorter term ways because people get results with it so quickly, which is awesome to be clear. And it's really fun. But to add something new into my life or to make space for more clients means removing something else. Right now, that might mean that I give up teaching music because that's probably what I'm the least excited about right now. But that's a big deal to me because I've been teaching music pretty steadily for over 20 years. And this week, I also said no to a music opportunity that I kind of can't believe I said no to because I knew I didn't have capacity and I knew I was not going to be able to do everything well. And that was so hard for my brain to admit. I did not want to do that. I really had to walk myself through that one. So sometimes I have to give up something I already have. Sometimes I have to say no to an opportunity because I'm holding space for something important that I'm growing in my life. And sometimes that something important is my health and my mental health. Here's the thing. Every time I've intentionally given something up because I trust that what's coming is better, it has been better. It hasn't necessarily been easier because sometimes that growth is uncomfortable, but in the end, it's worked out. And for me, part of what that journey has been has led me to owning a home and having long-term stability in that sense and being able to really balance the work I do, supporting people, which I absolutely love and is super important to me, and being a composer and being able to do that work, which is super important to me. And it took a lot of accepting and receiving and letting go and being vulnerable to get to the point where I could allow the situation to happen, if that makes sense. And I also recognize absolutely the privilege that allowed me to do that. And especially with that affordable housing that I had for several years, that really changed the trajectory of my life. Part of what I wanted to do with this episode was to acknowledge that role that both money and housing stability have had on my mental and physical health. And I know that for most people, that's not something that you can immediately change or improve on your own because it's part of a larger systemic problem, especially if you live in a place that has intentionally used zoning laws to keep people out that they don't want there, that the people in power don't want there, or if you experience discrimination when you seek work or if you're not able to work at all, because we know that even if you can get disability payments officially, they are not enough. There are a lot of elements of the system that are really fucked up. And I just want to validate that if you're experiencing that, if you have experienced that, it makes sense if you feel bad. <laughs> you know, if you're experiencing mental and physical health issues because of that, it is baked into the system. So I wanted to share that, acknowledge that privilege, and share a bit of my experience with this concept of holding on and being afraid to let go of what I have, whatever that is, whether it was an element of my identity, being incredibly protective of myself, not wanting to let people take care of me, and my identity as a poor artist. I'm not sure what all of this might mean for you or how it might be landing for you. It's totally natural as humans to be more afraid of losing what we have than of gaining what we don't yet have. And at the same time, if we can't imagine that new thing, it's very difficult to move toward it. I truly did not know that the life I have now and as good as I feel was possible. I just wanted to feel less shitty for a long time. 
I didn't really have any vision of feeling good because that was so far from my experience. So today, I actually want to leave you with some questions. And if it's helpful to you to journal about them, that can be one way of getting interesting ideas out of your head, either writing by hand or just recording yourself talking. Or you can just think about them and see what comes out. What can you imagine for yourself? What do you truly believe that you deserve? Can you expand that to allow yourself to believe that you deserve more? Thanks for listening to a bit more of my journey and how my brain works. And I hope this was helpful for you. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. If you know someone who would be helped by this podcast, please share it with them. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions at Mattia at MattiaMarie.com. That's M-A-T-T-I-A at M-A-T-T-I-A-M-A-U-R-E-E dot com. Thank you.